You're listening to the Gospel of Mark, a series preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Father, Lord, we thank you that we can come boldly to your throne tonight. Lord, we thank you that though we are so unworthy, though we are so sinful, you have made a way the blood of your Son to come to your throne, to open your book, to be your children, to have your spirit inside of us working as your word is read and taught. And God, I pray that your, your spirit would work in us tonight, that your name would be lifted high and that Christ would be glorified. Father, this is a, a problem that we often don't recognize in our own lives. And so God, I pray that you would point out the areas uh, Lord, that you'd reveal our hearts to ourselves um, and help us to deal with this. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for the work that the Spirit does. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible tonight, you can open to Mark chapter 9. Be in Mark's Gospel once again this evening. Looking at the title, True Greatness. And I want to say welcome to the sermon that nobody wants to hear. I'm in that boat with you because this is also the sermon that nobody wants to preach. It's not because the story is lacking. It is not because the topic is irrelevant or of little consequence. In fact, I think one could argue that this story perfectly illustrates a problem that most of us have, and it is the root of so much of the rest of our sin in our lives. It is the cause of so much of the relational problems that we experience. And so as we go through this life, and as we struggle with sin, and as we have problems on our relationships, recognize that this sin is at the root of so much of that. It is highly relevant and of great consequence. So why do we not want to hear it? Well, simply put, we don't want to hear it because it's just a topic we would prefer to avoid and a problem we would prefer to pretend doesn't exist. It is a sin within our hearts that wields incredible power and influence and simultaneously remains indiscernible within the hearts of those who possess it. I don't know if you've heard, but some people think that the Masons control the world. Does anybody know who the Masons are? A group of men that kind of have these secret groups, secret clubs, and you have to be a part of it. And they think that they're always behind the scenes, the political scenes, the, the big companies, and that they are behind the scenes, pulling the strings and ruling the world. They're undetectable, but they possess incredible power and influence. I think the theory is crazy. <laughs> I don't think it's true. But... If it were, this single weakness within humanity would be much like the Masons. The anonymous puppeteer behind so much of the sin in our hearts and in our lives. Can anybody guess what the topic we'll be speaking from this evening is? Pride! What a good guess! It's because he's a pastor. That's why he knew that. It's pride and our desperate need for humility. Do you remember the story of the author, William Farley? He'd written six books, and he was um, talking about 
what it was like when he finally held the first copy of his book entitled Gospel-Powered Humility. This was the book that he put so much time and effort into, and so he was so excited to be holding the first hard copy, kind of the, the material uh, proof of his hard work. He called up his agent right away, and he was just so excited on the phone, sharing his excitement, and then he went to finish the conversation and said, well, I just hope that it sells. And the agent stopped him and said, listen, Bill, I, won't, I don't want you to get too excited. This book will probably sell very slowly. And he said, how come? I mean, thinking it's such a good book and everybody needs this, why would it sell slowly? The editor said, people buy books based on felt need. You have written a good book and we published it because we believe in it, but nobody has a felt need for humility. Everybody thinks they are already humble. I wonder when the last time it was that we confessed our need for humility. If you're a student of human nature or a student of the Bible, you know that pride is ubiquitous. It's everywhere, in all people, all the time. And many of the people in the world have embraced it as a healthy way of living. But, as you know, being in a church, even we struggle with it quite often. In fact, I would say that there is not a soul born whose heart is not infected to some extent with this sin. We recognize this to be true in principle, but I wonder when the last time we looked for it in our own lives was. Humble Christians are the first to see their pride, to admit it, and then to try and deal with it. And so tonight, with God's help, I hope we can re remove our spiritual blinders within our own lives, and that we will try and recognize not the pride in the person you're sitting next to, because if you look for it, you'll find it. It's not helpful. The pride in our own hearts and our own lives. We begin reading our story from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, and verse 30. And they departed thence, this is Jesus and the disciples, and passing through Galilee, and he would that not any man should know it. So they're leaving, and they're heading back toward Galilee, and they're going to be actually passing through the province of Galilee. And Jesus wants it very clear that he doesn't want anybody to know about it. He wants to spend this time with his disciples. The last place they were in was north of Galilee, in a place called Caesarea Philippi. This was a Gentile city, a city known for its paganism. In fact, Tom was sharing with me last time I was talking about this city that from Bethsaida to Caesarea, there was a road, and along that road, it was filled with shrines to false gods on both sides. And so when Jesus is having the conversation with his disciples, and he's saying, well, who, do you, who, do, who does everybody think that I am? And, and they reply, well, I think that you're, they think that you're one of the prophets, you're Moses, Elijah, you know, you're just a really great guy, everybody loves you. And he says, well, who do you think I am? That that statement, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, was given along this road. That Jesus is teaching them about his true identity as they're surrounded by pagan gods, shrines to false gods, statues of false gods. And so Christ here is lifted up as the God, with all of these as being no gods at all. Now Jesus is leading the way back toward Galilee. They're, they're leaving this city. 
I think it's interesting, too, that Jesus took them up to Mount Hermon in this Gentile area. Okay? I mean, Mount Hermon is a really high mountain, but it would have been overlooking Gentile places. And that's where he was transfigured. And so you've got the glory of the Christ revealed as he's lifted high above all of the false gods that surrounded them. I think it's just a wonderful picture. And so now they're on their way back from this wonderful experience and Jesus uh, casting a demon out of the young boy. And rather than using this as an opportunity to preach and to heal, which he often did, right? it wasn't a bad thing, it was a good thing that he was doing, Jesus thought there was something else that was more useful to do at this time. That was to spend time with his disciples. And so he, had, he said no to a conference so that he could say yes to spending time with just a few people close to him. That's a good lesson to learn. It's one I wish I could learn. And not, that I, not that I'm saying no to conferences, but no to things, right? We always say yes to everything. And so, verse 31, For he taught his disciples and he said to them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Jesus is teaching his disciples as they walk, and the thing that was so important that he passed up the opportunity to preach to crowds that he wanted to teach them was about his impending death. The Son of Man will be crucified. He will be killed. The third day, he'll rise again. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, we find that Jesus had already attempted to teach them this lesson. Right? Immediately after, Peter identified Jesus as the Son of the living God. Jesus says, yes, you're right. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but, but the Father did. But I want you to know what my mission is. And he began to teach them in Mark 8.31 that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. After that, Peter rebuked Jesus. And then Jesus called Peter Satan. And so it didn't go well the first time. They didn't really seem to get it the first time. And I think sometimes what happens with us is when we try to speak truth to somebody, something that they might need to hear, and it doesn't go well the first time, we say, I tried, I gave it my best effort, but I'm not going to go there again. But Jesus knows this is something they absolutely need to get. And so here he takes the opportunity to teach them again. And I love the fact that he's just doing this in such a casual way. They're on the way. He didn't, he didn't summon a meeting. He's just, he's just with them, and he's living life with them, and he's teaching them what they need to know. It's such a wonderful picture of discipleship. The disciples have no idea what he's talking about, right? It says right there, they, they didn't understand, but they didn't want to ask any questions. And that's unfortunate. It, can I tell you just like it, one piece of advice? And I want to say... You can forget everything else, but you shouldn't forget everything else. But if you leave with one piece of advice, it would be, when you're confronted with questions about Jesus, and you don't know the answer, ask questions. Just, just try and find out the answer. Why, why are we so interested? Like, we Google stuff all the time about ridiculous facts, things that nobody needs to know ever. And yet, when it comes to spiritual things, 
We read something in our Bibles. We don't know what it's talking about. Oh, oh well. We never think to ask. The people that I see grow are the people that are in the habit of asking questions. Right? And, and I can, I mean, it's not often enough that that happens. So, they didn't ask. They didn't learn at that time. Verse 33, and he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, what was it that you disputed among yourselves, by the way? <laughs> this is one of those gotcha moments, right? But Jesus knows the Socratic method, and he knows it's better to ask a question, because that will stir their conscience, than to make an accusation, because that will harden their will. Right, Pastor? Yeah, he always said that to me. And so, ask questions, and Jesus he does this in a really brilliant way. He says, hey, guys, I heard you having this discussion back there. You were having this little argument. What, what was that about? Can you guess what happened when he asked the question? Nobody answered. Okay, verse 30, 34, but they held their peace. Why? For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. <laughs> like, who wants to say that? Ah, oh, Jesus, this was our discussion. We were just talking about which one of us was the best. Like, who of us should get the best place in your kingdom? Right? That's not something you ever want to admit. It might be something you wonder, but not something you ever admit. And so Jesus, whom we have now determined is the son of the living God, is discussing his impending death, and rather than asking him questions about it, they're debating who is the best among them. They are foolish and ridiculous. And once again, we find the disciples acting in a way that we can relate to. Even though we don't have these conversations out loud very often, we know what it feels like to want to be the first. We know what it feels like to feel like we deserve recognition, to believe we are better than others that we are smarter, more qualified, more gifted. We know what it feels like to want what is best for ourselves. We want the biggest piece of cake or the last handful of chips. We know what it's like to want others to serve us, but to not be very quick to serve and to sacrifice for others. We can relate to the disciples here. Verse 35, and he sat down, and he called the 12 and said to them, this is a good lesson for me, okay? Because when I see this in my kids, I want to lash out. It's ugly, right? This is ugly behavior. And when I see ugly behavior in my kids, regardless of the fact that I see it in myself all the time and I, I give myself a break, when I see it in my kids, you know, you just want to end it. You want to stop it. And so Jesus, he, he, he takes care of it, right? He doesn't bypass it. He doesn't, he's not passive. He doesn't pretend like it doesn't exist. But what he does is he calls the twelve together, he sits them down, and he says to them, If any man desires to be first, the same shall be the last of all, and the servant of all. And he took a child, and he set him in the midst of them, and when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whomsoever shall receive one of such children in my name receives me. And whosoever shall receive me receives not me, but him that sent me. And so Jesus gathers them together, he sits them down, and he kindly teaches them this essential component of the Christian life. If you desire to be first, if you want to be served, 
you shall be last. Now, you may get it here. This side of heaven, there's a chance that if you desire to be served, you'll find somebody who will serve you. But we're confronted here with this, this idea of the competing kingdoms, right? That there's a kingdom of God, and within the kingdom of God, there's a way things work. God has a set of principles, morals, rules, priorities. This is how things work in his kingdom. And then we are also confronted with the world around us that says, it's me first. Take what's yours. You only live once. It feels good. Do it. You have to take care of number one. So we've got these competing kingdoms and competing principles. The world system, the system where you get credit for being fleshly, or God's system, where the Christian is supposed to be learning how to live like a citizen of heaven, how to love and to give and to sacrifice, how to not put yourself first, but in fact love others as you would want to be loved, as you love yourself. And then what he does is shocking to them, and not really to us. He takes the least esteemed of society, and he puts this poor little boy in the middle of these 12 grown men. You have to understand that children in the first century were not viewed in the same way that children are now. Okay? Now, within a Jewish home, they were loved. They were cared for. The mother and father were taught to take care of their children and to teach their children. So, so don't get the impression that like children were dirt and nobody ever cared about them. And It wasn't like that. They were taught to care about them. God said that children are a blessing from the Lord. And so they were seen as a gift. However, within society, they were seen as someone without any status. Someone who could offer you nothing. Someone who you have no obligation to. And so, when he puts this little boy in the middle of them, it wasn't like it is today. Today, parents are there simply to serve their children. Parents often treat their children like they're the master and I'm the servant. And so, when, if it was today and we put a child in this and said, treat, you should be treating everybody like you treat this child, um, everybody would jump at the opportunity to treat the child that way because we already do it, right? I mean, some places. That's not the case here. Society expected children to stay out of the way, kind of like a stray dog. There was nothing in society that was designed for their amusement, for their entertainment. If we were to go out in our society, you would look all over the place and find things that kids can do. And I think it's great. I'm glad that, that there are things for kids to do. It just wasn't that way. And then Jesus says this thing that is absolutely shocking to them. He says, when you receive a child in my name, it's like you're receiving me. Can you imagine if Jesus was to walk in here, how he would be received? What we think about Jesus. Like he is the one that created the world by speaking. Created the universe by speaking. He's the one that that rules and reigns. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the judge of all creation. He's the one that will answer to forever. How should we receive someone like that? And Jesus says, when you receive a child, it's like you're receiving me. But not only me, because when you receive me, you're really receiving my father in heaven. It would have been mind-blowing, scandalous, and shocking for these men. And Jesus 
is teaching them a lesson. And this lesson is connected with their desire for position and prestige. If you want to serve me and my father, you're going to have to be a whole lot more humble than you are, fellas. You will never serve those around you who are the greatest, who have the greatest need and the least to offer until you view your service to them as service to Jesus. That's how it's meant to be viewed. And so, I have a three-step process to help us in this endeavor. Step number one, self-assessment. C.J. Mahaney wrote a book on humility called Humility, True Greatness. And he defined pride this way. He said, pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon him. So pride, based on that definition, is really bad. I want to be God. I don't need God for anything. And none of us would say that. But there are degrees of pride. How about, I want to control this aspect of my life. I want to be God of this part of my life. I know I need him in a lot of ways, but I don't know that I need his guidance and direction in this way, in this part of my life. I want a position of authority without God's blessing or before he's granted it. I, I want to be somebody, even though God hasn't put that in my life yet. We find ourselves lifting ourselves up quite often. Humility, by contrast, is honestly assessing ourselves in the light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. So to be truly humble, what we must do is to stand back and view the glory of God. See how awesome he is. And that is not something we do very often. It is something we sing about, something we read. It's not something we stop and do. Because we're not a society that stops and thinks. We are a society that's always consuming. We're always putting new things into our brain. If somebody writes a great article about how glorious God is, maybe it'll keep our attention long enough for us to get something from it. But it's not something we're going to do by ourselves. I'm telling you, I don't think that's healthy. I think that we should be stopping and thinking about truth more often. And one of the things we should think about more often is how glorious God is. Who creates stars that are billions of light years away just to declare his glory? That's that's insane. Go from there to the microscopic level and think of how awesome it is that within a cell there's all these moving parts and that's what's the basis of all life. Like how do billions of cells in my body working together so that I can think and speak and you can see me and we can have this conversation right now? Like it's nuts. God did that. All of his mind. And so, it's seeing God for who he is, his gloriousness, and then seeing ourselves for who we are. That's an essential part, because if we lift God up and then we put ourselves right below him, it's a problem. We're never going to see it properly. It is abasing ourselves, recognizing the sinfulness that, that, that is us. And as we do that, we begin the process of being humble. Because humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness, and our own sinfulness. Here is Jesus' assessment of the disciples. 
I know you want to be a part of my kingdom. You want to serve in the kingdom. That part's apparent. But you want to choose your role. And I am telling you that you must be willing to serve the least if you really want to serve in my kingdom. You must be willing to serve those who will never extol you, never be impressed by you, who will never be able to lift you up and and tell you how awesome you are. You must be willing to serve those who no one else cares to serve. Then you'll be serving me and my Father, but not until then. And the implication here is this. Many people who serve, serve Jesus with the wrong motivations and are therefore not really serving Jesus at all. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Like, if you want to serve in my kingdom, this is what this looks like. And we say, that's not really what it looks like for me. (laughs) And Jesus says, that's because you're not serving in my kingdom yet. That's a problem. Your focus is a comparison between you and the others around you instead of looking to God and asking, God, what is your will for my life? How can I serve you? What will you have me to do? And if this is going to be helpful, we must do the hard work of self-assessment. We must stop, view the glory of God, and then look deeply within ourselves. Uh, C.S. Lewis helpfully quipped, If any man would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that you are proud. The first step to humility to recognize your problem. So do you want to serve God in your own way, or are you willing to serve him however he chooses? Am I actively serving the children of society, those who no one else wants to serve, who will bring me no benefit, who cannot offer thanks or reward? i got to assess myself. Step two, look to Jesus. On the road, Here through Galilee, Jesus is trying to teach his disciples about his impending death and his resurrection. That's what the lesson is supposed to be about. They didn't ask questions because they were embarrassed. And maybe it's because they remember what happened last time. Last time, somebody made a statement after Jesus said that. Jesus called him Satan. So they thought, I'm not going to mess with this this topic anymore. I'm just going to leave it alone. And so we understand they want to be in his kingdom, but notice they don't really want to understand it. They don't really want to know what it means to be in his kingdom. They were not interested in his plan, in his future, and in his mission. They wanted their own version of what his plan should be, what his mission should be. They had their own version of what it looked like to serve in his kingdom. We have this added benefit. We can look back and see the whole story. So we know the beginning. In Philippians 2 verse 6, we find that Christ Jesus, or who, being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and came in the likeness of men. So we we recognize that that's how it started, right? And that all by itself should blow our minds. To think that the God who spoke everything into existence, including the stars and the cells, now takes on himself the form of sinful flesh. Can you imagine if you had the ability to speak an ant colony into an existence? Like, you don't, because you're not nearly that powerful. But imagine you did. And then the ant colony rebelled against you. 
They wanted nothing to do with you, even though you were the one that gave them everything that they needed to survive. (laughs) And then you decided that the only way to help them was to become an ant. Like, you, with, with all that you are as a human being, decided to humble yourself to become an ant. Do you understand that that analogy doesn't even start to come close to the analogy of God becoming man? Not even close. I mean, we have no ability to speak anything to existence. We have no right to ask any creature to call us God. And he has all the ability and all the right and all the power, and he takes on himself the form of flesh. That is already amazing. Then we know the gruesome humiliation that Christ endured at the end. Verse 8, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That the Son of God came to the earth, to live a perfect and sinless life, and then to be hung naked and bleeding on the cross. I mean, like, Jesus is on the cross being humiliated and shamed, and off of his body are dripping his blood, mixed with some of the saliva that people have spit on him. This is the creator of the universe, and this is what he endured. This is how he humbled himself. That would be a disgusting scene for any human being. That would be humiliating for any human being. We're talking about God. That God endured that. And so we know the beginning, we know the humiliation, and we know the command, Philippians 2, 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. This is, let nothing be done because you're putting yourself out there. Because you want it. Because you want to be recognized. Let nothing be done within your selfishness. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let each one of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This This is what Christ did. And this is the mind we're supposed to have. Look to Jesus We look to him and we ask, Jesus, how can I serve you? Not how can I serve and be noticed, or how can I demonstrate to the world how gifted I am, or how can I show that I'm better than others? If you are serving the least of these, that's great. But even if you are serving the least of these, with the desire to be seen serving them, then you're no better than the guy who says, I want to be greatest. The difference is he's honest. He's proud. Proud is like anything, but he's honest. We need to serve, and we need to serve without a desire to be seen or to be impressing other people with humility. And the only way to do that is to look to Jesus. Because as we look to Jesus, we see the perfect example of it. And as we look to his cross, we see who we really are. Like, who we really are put Jesus on the cross. So how could we ever lift ourselves up? Why would we ever do that? We are saved because God died for me. That's that's the only thing that could ever save me. And so if that's true, how could I ever lift myself up and expect to be served? How could I ever ask for a position? 
we must look to Jesus. And finally, step number three, serve in gospel-powered humility. I, I could have just said, serve in humility, but that would have been too easy. <laughs> we need to serve with a deep understanding of the cross, of who we are without Christ, of who we are in Christ, and what he's accomplished for us. Um, the truth is, ministry can be exhausting. And so, we must serve with humility. But there are many of you out there that I know you're already serving. And you're finding serving very difficult. Right? You're, you're finding serving exhausting. And, I mean, there's no easy answer to all of this. But Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. So there should be a part of the Christian life where we actually do find rest, rest even in the serving. And maybe part of it is we, we get to like unleash ourselves from this desire to push ourselves forward and always be the best and always have the best and always be first. We, that's not us anymore. And so there is some freedom in just saying, Lord, whatever. I don't care what they say. I don't care what happens to me. I don't care what I have to do. I don't, what, whatever. I'm just going to do it. There's some freedom in that. Uh, Hannah Anderson wrote a book called Humble Roots. And it's a book that comes highly endorsed by Tara. And so when Tara highly endorses a book, you probably should read it. Um, she's read a few. She reads quite a bit. She's read a few that are really good, and she always tells me I have to read them. And in fact, when I asked her, I said, hey, babe, I'm going to be preaching on humility this week, and I know you read that book that you really liked. Uh, do you have any quotes or anything from that that I might be able to use? She sent me like 40 pages on Facebook, like pictures of 40 pages, they were all like highlighted and underlined. And so, I mean, I didn't know what to do with that. But on the way here tonight, she said, you know, you should really read that book. It would be good for you. <laughs> yeah, I know what you're saying. But this is what, this is what Hannah wrote when, if you're not experiencing his rest. He says, if you were, she says, if you were weighed down, put out, resentful, you must ask whether you are pulling under his yoke. If you're feeling burdened and heavy laden, you must question whether you're as humbly submitted to him as you believe yourself to be. You may have thrown off the yoke of religious form. You may be working for the greater good, but it's entirely possible that you are still plowing under your own direction and strength. Like, we must come to him completely empty and then say, Lord, whatever your will is. And I think sometimes we, we still have this yoke that the world puts on us, that it's got to be me first, that we should strive for position and for whatever prestige, for influence, instead of just getting out there and doing what Christ has called us to. Because in that, there is freedom and rest. We live in a world of competing kingdoms. The kingdom around us, exalts those who exalt themselves. If you don't believe that, you should look at Hollywood a little bit because they do enough self-exaltation. There's a lot of good that can be done in social media, right? There, you can connect with people that you otherwise can't. You can share the gospel on social media. But it also just highlights some of the worst parts of humanity. And so much of the influencers, which is a term now, on social media are those who are just pushing themselves up higher and higher all the time. That's the world. 
we must remind ourselves that Satan is the ruler of this world and the godless system of this world is a, is a system where pride is a virtue. And it's just not. We serve a God whose kingdom has no end. And so when you're choosing kingdoms, take that into account. In Luke 18, 14, for everyone that exalts himself shall be abased. That's a promise. He that humbles himself shall be exalted. And that's also a promise. Job twenty two twenty nine, he shall save the humble person. Proverbs 15, 33, before honor is humility. Matthew 19, 30, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. For my favorite, Isaiah 57, 15, for thus says the high and the lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him that is also of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God dwells with the humble. And so next time you've got pride in your life, try and remember that. God dwells with the humble. If this is the God we serve, the God who is all-powerful, the God who made all things, whose kingdom lasts forever. It just might be time that we assess ourselves, look to Jesus, and then seek to humbly serve him in light of the cross. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for um, the example that Jesus set as he humbled himself, as he became a man, and as he was humiliated on the cross all for our sins. Lord, we thank you that you have made your kingdom clear, your way clear for us, that your kingdom is not where we push ourselves up and forward and try and exalt ourselves, but instead your kingdom is one where we seek the benefit of others. We look to others. We try and help others. We sacrifice ourselves. Uh, we humble ourselves. And Lord, I pray that we would honestly assess where we're at, that we would take a hard look at our lives. Lord, help us to then, in light of that, look at the glory of God and just be once again amazed by who you are and what you've done. And Lord, help us to humbly serve in light of the cross, in light of Christ dying in my place. Help me to humbly serve you. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.